Local productions seen on Delta College Public Media are made possible with support from viewers like you. Thank you. Welcome to Junior Doan's The Spark. I'm Junior Doan and thank you for joining us. My guest today is a novelist and an editor of The Kaleidoscope, George Salas. George is the author of See Above, Sun Below. Welcome, George. So, George, you created The Kaleidoscope. Tell us about that. I started that sometime late 2019 and I started it sort of in conjunction with releasing my first novel, See Above, Sun Below. I felt having finally found a publisher for my novel, I developed some kind of uh, enough of a background, so to speak, to start the kaleidoscope. And my goal with that was pretty modest to begin with, simply to publish the type of writing that I like, that takes risks, uh, that isn't afraid of those $12 words or 20 dollar words or even one hundred dollar words and uh, I also included some interviews with authors and basically the main purpose of the kaleidoscope is to shine a light on those works that I think are often neglected and those writers who are sort of writing in the dark and don't really have an audience and my goal is to shine a light and hopefully get other people interested in those works and I've actually had some tremendous progress that I was not expecting. Uh, Domicio Contino's novel, his second novel that was never translated into English after I covered his work, it was finally translated into English and it's scheduled for publication uh, either this year or early next year. Uh, and the same, same thing with a translation by uh, Abel Passe, who passed away recently, he wrote, uh, a Venice memoir in which, among other things, he met Jorge Luis Borges, and uh, that came out a couple of years ago. And those are just two examples of some of the things that have happened because of the kaleidoscope. You're a leader. Well, I didn't see <laughs> I, that I in tried. yourself exactly, but the the purpose, as I read it, is to showcase subversive. I won't ask you what that means, and, and art for art's sake. What were you referring to that uh, would describe it better? Well, when I say art for art's sake, I'm thinking mostly of the kind of art that isn't driven by an, the need to have an audience. In, instead of being burdened by doubt and wondering what will other people make of this art, I envision the artist wrestling with his or her imagination and uh, not inhibiting themselves to find a mass audience, for instance. And uh, as far as subversiveness, I think many books expect, or readers expect many books to have a point A, point B, 
uh, storyline wrapped up with a nice bow. And that can be comforting sometimes, but that seems to be the dominant type of fiction that gets published these days. And so by subversive, I'm looking for the type of fiction that has multiple storylines crisscrossed every which way that uses um, highfalutin words, so to speak, and injects their prose with something that uh, is almost indescribable and, and can be a little difficult to process as a reader. But I think putting in the effort ultimately is fruitful and provides a richer experience. I, I didn't find your book difficult. I found it um, engrossing. Some, sometimes, what did I just read? Sometimes I had to look up words, which is a compliment to you, because I particularly right. like a book that makes me look up words. Uh, but I just, uh, I, I just felt the nourished by the time and, and effort, apparently, mm. you spent on the use of words in describing things. But then there were things that I really didn't understand, like Yamaka, Varand, and the Torah. And I thought, how did that get in here? And I thought, mm. well, keep reading, keep reading. But I never figured it out. Well, you mentioned you didn't find it difficult. And that's the thing. Difficulty is highly subjective. And uh, I remember there's a character in the novel Darkaville's Cat by Alexander Theroux uh, who asks another character who's writing a book, am I, how often am I going to have to use the dictionary to read this? And the character responds, well, it depends on how often you've used the dictionary in general. So in that sense, uh, difficulty is subjective. And as far as getting some of the things, I mean, with my first novel, I was stumbling in the dark as it were, figuring out the structure, figuring out the characters and trying to make sense of some of the imagery. Uh, so your confusion is my confusion. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, that's just part of the thing is trying to figure out what some of these images mean. And it's been about 10 years since I started writing the novel and it took three years in total to write. And I feel like I have enough of a of an objective point of view to assess it, but I have not read it uh, for a while. So it does feel like an entity that exists completely outside of me after having exercised it, as it were. Well, I actually like that because it reminded me of life. A lot of things come flying by. And as you mm -hmm. say, reality is, is based on your perspective or words to that effect. And it certainly reminds you uh, of that. So I wasn't challenged by the jump around. I mean, I wasn't concerned about that. I was really sort of fascinated. Um, uh, I think it Anyway, I want to ask, ask you about your training to write because I, I uh, you can't have been born with, <laughs> uh, you can have been born with a sensitivity, but the skill, don't you think, has to develop I don't think there are necessarily writer prodigies. You can have a prodigy musician, for instance, but a writer needs, first of all, the life experience. Uh, and then, of course, honing the craft. For me, I mean, I took some classes in college, uh, kind of experimenting with what I was interested in, whether it was nonfiction, poetry, or fiction. Uh, but that didn't have too much of an effect on me other than sort of getting me in the seat 
to start writing. Uh, what did it for me was reading widely and reading just sort of worshiping at the altar of these writers who I admired, such as Salman Rushdie, Italo Calvino later on, Borges, and, and to go back to my sort of roots, my love for magical realism, I read 100 Years of Solitude by Marquez, and that kind of opened up a whole new world for me. And, and just the first sentence, the famous first sentence of Sian Años de Soledad is, jumps around in time. And that kind of showed me what you can do with sentences and how you can stretch things and take the reader on a journey, whether they're, they want to go along with it or not. Are you one of these people who hears words, but just hears them, sees pictures? Oh, synesthesia, like uh, Vladimir Nabokov? No. Yes. No, they're, they're, do you have a photographic memory that you can no, count I don't on? Think so. <laughs> but I, my writing is very imagistic. And I started with two images for my debut novel, See Above, Some Below. I, I conflated or superimposed the image of Icarus falling. That was a myth that stayed with me since I was a kid. I, I loved the, the myth of Icarus, whether I understood the implications of that myth as a child or not. And I superimposed that onto skydivers, this, these two acts of falling. And I wanted to investigate how, how they relate and how they don't relate, compare and contrast them. And the other image I had was of someone in the Garden of Eden or something like the Garden of Eden, spreading their wings. And the wings were made of wax, string, and feathers. So the Icarus wings appeared to me once again. And uh, it's the concept of the fall, the fall of man, as it were, in the Garden of Eden. And even the fall of Humpty Dumpty is sort of in there in spirit, or even uh, Peter, uh, who was crucified upside down and he's stuck in the symbol of a perpetual fall. So there's a lot to play with, I discovered when I was stumbling in the dark with that novel. You dedicated the novel to your wife who has unmeltable wings. Hmm. Absolutely, she's, she's my constant. You're right, she keeps you uh, afloat in the right direction. Um, if it isn't too personal, what did you learn from her that causes you to feel that way? Uh, just the constant support and if I'm trying to work through an idea, she's the first person I go to to talk it through. And even, even with the title of the novel, See Above, Some Below, my first instinct, as it were, was to simply title it uh, Sea Above, or uh, Sun Above, Sea Below, which is kind of like a sea spot run title. It's a little too obvious. And she said as much. And she said, what if you reverse that? Sea Above, Sun Below. And that clicked for me 100%, because that's the kind of image you see if you're falling upside down from the sky. You see the sun you see the sea at your feet, even though you're upside down. And what that also spurred in me was the idea of this quiet 
apocalypse that happens later on in the novel, not to spoil anything, but uh, this apocalypse, as it were, of the sky trading places with the earth or vice versa. So it's things like that uh, where she guides me and prevents my uh, wings from melting, from flying too close to the sun, as it were. It's a great compliment to her. To the, she's a wonderful woman when I heard the other night. Yes. Um, I understand you have two novels you're thinking about, one almost finished, uh, yeah. and one further in the future devoted to something to do with Greece. Is that your heritage? Yes, that's one of my main ancestral roots. Um, that will be the third novel after I finish the second one, which is titled Morphological Echoes. I've been working on that for about 10 years, if you round up. And this year is the year when I will finally finish it. Uh, and in comparison to my first novel, the first novel is like a seed, and this one I see as, as the oak, or the, the Yggdrasil, the, the Norse world tree, as it were, because it has all the elements of the first novel, squared, hypercubed, taken to the next level. Um, but with the third novel, I'll be traveling to Greece and connecting with my roots. I've been there three times before, about a month each time. Uh, but of course, that's not enough time to soak everything up. And I'll be uh, with my wife for the first time in Greece. And we're going to explore the mountains up north, uh, the beaches, Sunio in the south and go island hopping and do as much research as I can. And I also want to challenge myself and learn the language because I feel that's an oversight of my childhood. Uh, my parents never taught me to speak Greek and I think it'll help me with writing the novel, but it also helped me uh, as a lifelong learner and to just challenge my brain and keep myself busy. Tell us something about your family. Did you grow up where they were immigrants or you grew up in the East Coast, West Coast, partly Greece? My mother's, my mother's family was already sort of Americanized. They lived in Pennsylvania and they would go back and forth uh, and do trips back to Greece where they still had family. And that's where my mother met my father who was not Americanized. And uh, once they got pregnant with my brother uh, I'm the younger child of two. Uh, they moved to America and then my dad started to get Americanized. And we lived in Pennsylvania, not for too long. I was still in kindergarten when we moved down to Florida. And that's where I spent most of my life uh, to the point of getting a bit, developing some ennui toward the, uh, the state and wanting to get out of there. So I did some traveling and I taught English in China and uh, Bulgaria and Poland, uh, but I was still weighed down by student loans. So I, I kept having to come back to the nest, as it were. My wife's parents, who took me in and helped me uh, financially and uh, emotionally, etc. cetera. Uh, but yeah, not to go too off base, but yeah. Often people's experience show up in their work. Uh, read a comment that some your mother relationship with you isn't the best and perhaps that entered or was in your mind when you wrote um, 
the mother's part in the book. Yes, that actually, that chapter is titled Flora and it won two awards in college when I was just graduating. I had submitted that section as a standalone story to the, uh, the Sullivan Award for Fiction from the English department and the Anne Morris Prize uh, for Fiction from the Department uh, of uh, Gender Studies. So having won those two awards and it was published uh, as a standalone in Crab Fat magazine way back in the day, it was my first one of my first publications uh, before the novel came out. I think something with that chapter resonates with people and it still holds uh, kind of a special place in my heart if for no other reason than being cathartic having written it and uh but yes i actually have a kind of strained relationship with both parents kind of have felt uh like something of an orphan uh having grown up not with any substantial concept of family or get-togethers i mean we had some here and there but it was very disparate and uh pretty much non-existent today, but uh, I have made up for that in life with my wife's parents who support me in many ways and I'm very grateful to have them in my life. And I believe that uh, you choose your family rather than being bound by blood. Uh, oh, uh, you're a lucky man. I, I told you just before the program started that I, uh, when I was reading it, I said, this is a hero's journey for you, for you, not the people in the book. I, mm. I just thought, I, I wish you would comment on that. I don't know why I said that. I feel the next couple of books and all this is a uh, long-term challenging, I don't know, I can't call them moments, but experiences and the way you treasure words <laughs> And your imagination, uh, the way you teach by re reference, is a treat for someone like me who doesn't read the bestsellers. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> but when you write uh, or interview, sometimes you interview authors, are you interested in their style? What interests you as a writer to hear them talk about? Definitely the style, but I don't want to say that's number one. And I think it was William H. Gass who said that style is substance because a lot of people get accused of having style over substance. I do believe there's merit to both of those uh, accusations, as it were. Uh, but for me, the best type of writing has both style and substance. And it, I mean, it's hard to put into words exactly what that is because it depends from on book to book but no matter how no matter where i am with writing and what kind of images i use there's always i try to put in an emotional core to it and to and to ha have empathy toward my characters and toward also other animals especially in morphological echoes there's an albino crocodile who has uh, unrequited love toward a pharaoh. And there are, there's a house of adopted dogs who all have their own stories. So 
Yeah, it's hard to pinpoint. I'd have to talk about specific writers. Uh, but the, one of the best writers I've encountered recently was uh, Alexander Theroux and his novel Darkville's Cat, which has been out of print for some 30, 40, maybe even 50 years. And he has a polyphony of forms. You get uh, a student's report card or, and an essay uh, by one of the students. The, the uh, protagonist is the teacher. You get uh, the, this chapter of prayers and curses, and you get a list of books. Uh, there's a long literary tradition with lists. So I'm a sucker for lists in particular. Um, yeah, those are just some of the elements I appreciate in uh, this kind of writing that I seek out. Are you a very sensitive person? It reads that way in your books. My, whatever sensitivity I have, or the bulk of it, I owe to my wife, who has sort of uh, built, or uh, sort of cracked the toxic masculinity walls that were built up having been raised by my father, who kind of suffers from that. Uh, so she has helped me in, in that sense to get more in touch with my emotions and being able to express my emotions. And I, I do believe that fiction can exercise the empathic muscle. And empathy is a muscle that does need to be exercised. Although I don't want to overstate um, the empathic benefits of fiction because at that point you're kind of saying well uh, music is good because when you play the violin you can exercise your arm that's a little too utilitarian for me but i do believe there are some benefits uh to reading and writing fiction where you can connect with people and uh, enter someone else's mind which is could be a beautiful thing or even a horrific thing depending on the character the person uh, but you learn something new either way. Do you mean empathy or compassion? They lead uh, to different I mean, things. Yeah, I mean both really. I think it, it both can apply. It depends on, I guess, the type of novel you're writing. If you want to simply depict a certain type of character or if you want to uh, throw everything you have uh, at them when you're in the position of being in omnipotent, omniscient author. Uh, but yeah, I guess it depends. Um, you're interested in imagination, but what about intuition or sixth sense or things that are communicated energetically? Mm. I mean, that's that goes back to the writing process itself. Norman Mailer called writing the spooky art. Uh, because it's, there's so much involved with um, trying to tease the muse and bring out the muse and the muse is fickle and the muse is shy or sometimes non-existent. Uh, so it, intuition plays a huge role in writing, at least for me. And uh, that's why I try to keep myself open sen sensorily in every possible way <laughs> at all times. I mean. Not at all times, but I do take risks. But you never know where inspiration will come from. You never know where there will be some kind of detail uh, that would just work well in a specific story in the novel or a novel. 
so I, yeah, even in the shower, I'll come up with ideas just by sort of mentally tugging at things here and there. It's, uh, it's sometimes very difficult to put into words until you eventually do put them into words. You talked earlier about being young and you had to have experience. Mm. Do you think that changes every book you're going to write because you'll have different experiences? I think you can cheat a little bit and get experience by having read many books and living vicariously. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's helped that I've done a fair amount of traveling. If I had more finance or financial resources, I would be doing even more traveling. Uh, but thanks to the Tom Lafarge Award, they're funding my trip next year. If all things go well with finishing this second novel, I'll be in Greece uh, summer of 2024. And uh, yeah, again, you never know what's going to help with the writing. And that's why it's so important to put yourself out there uh, with Sea Above, Sun Below. I did my skydiving and legitimately thought I, I might die having doing it, even though uh, realistically speaking, I think just driving in a vehicle is more dangerous than skydiving. Uh, but yeah, putting yourself out there is extremely important. And, but at the same time... How do you time, push yourself out there? Uh, well, you have to balance out what William H. Gass wrote in his novel, The Tunnel, his great novel, Life in a Chair. Being an author, you have to live life in a chair, but it's also important to go out there and do the research. I think a great example is the author, William T. Volman. He's sort of infamous for having traveled to Afghanistan and almost dying in Antarctica. So he's the extreme example of putting yourself out there. Um, but yeah, that's, I want to do stuff like that to enrich my fiction. I don't know how necessary it is. It really depends on what you're writing. I do believe in the power of the imagination and, and being able to come up with things out of thin air. Uh, but again, you never know where the perfect detail, the perfect image, the perfect word will come from. And that's why you have to go out in the real world sometimes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, George. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I hope you have too. I, I recommend your book. I've, I've certainly read it and I look forward to whatever other piece you write wherever it is. And thank you for thank joining you so us. And for the audience, please go out and do something kind every day for someone you know and someone you don't know. And repeat it so that life gets better and more optimistic. To contact Junia, send her an email at juniadonesthespark at gmail.com. For more information, program schedules, and news about future guests, go to www.juniadonethespark.com. Thank you for joining us. See you next time on Junia Dones the Spark. Local productions seen on Delta College Public Media are made possible with support from viewers like you. Thank you.